As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Soccer 101, the show where we scratch the soccer itches you never knew you had. Today, we're focusing on the true architects of great soccer teams, the people who source the talent that shows up on the field, the scouts. This episode is inspired by a question sent to us by a listener named Chris Welter. Hi, Chris. They asked what a scout is, where they come from, what do they do, and for examples of some of the all-time greats. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is a boy, but not a scout, who was possibly a boy scout. Taylor Rockwell, hello. <laughs> hello. I was not a boy scout. I wish I could have been a scout, though reading more about scouts and what they're paid, I'm not sure that's even the case anymore. We've said the word scout so many times already. It's lost meaning. Scout, 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 scout. <laughs> we have scouted Scotland's finest. It's Graham hey. Rutherford. Hello, Graham. Hello, Ryan Bailey. You scouted Scotland's finest and you came back with me. I don't think you've uh, you've looked hard enough. You must be a scout for Everton. Yeah. No, we couldn't we couldn't afford their finest, so we went with Graham. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Taylor. We didn't look very hard, yes, you're right. But uh, it's wonderful to have you, Graham. Uh, and of course you, Taylor. And it's wonderful to have myself. I'll just say that. It's wonderful that we're all here talking. Isn't it nice? Uh, why don't we get straight into it? Um, Graham. Let's have the headline here. What exactly is a scout? I know it's not Bruce Willis's daughter or Atticus Finch's daughter specifically. It has a role in soccer. <laughs> yeah, so a scout is someone who, um, generally speaking, attends football matches usually on behalf of a, a club to collect intelligence. So most commonly that intelligence would be on players. A scout might be sent by a club to watch a player ahead of a, a potential transfer. The the scout will assess things like a player's technical ability, their phys- physical attributes, and also what areas of their game they can improve. Um, and then that scout will often produce a report of some kind and that intelligence will be fed back to, to the club for further analysis. Um, a scout could also be scouting a team as a whole. For instance, Rob Page, the, the Wales manager, he was at the USMNT's game against Saudi Arabia last week ahead of their, the World Cup opener in, in November. Page is obviously the manager in this instance, um, so he's decided to, to take on the scouting assignment himse- himself. But ordinarily, if, if he was busy, the, the Welsh FA would have sent a, a scout to that game and he, would, he or she would have fed um, information back to Page. Essentially, a, a, a scout's job is to look for things in, in players that cannot be seen with statistical analysis. So obviously, 
Um, when you get to the top level, certainly clubs will have uh, data analysis departments, tools like Scout and, and, and deep data analysis will be done on players. But a scout is generally there to also provide the, the, the eye test um, and look at things like a, a player's personality. They might also be fed into an, any analysis of, of a player done by a, a scout and their job is to save the manager or the coach's time by analysing more matches than they would be able to do in their own time. Uh, you mentioned um, Y Scout there, Graham. Could you just briefly explain what that is? It's a tool to help scouting, isn't it? Yeah, so Y Scout is uh, essentially uh, they they collect and curate video footage from all around world football, and you can search that video footage um, by you can filter it by player or by team or by type of player. They also have some analysis within that tool itself, so they'll provide some 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 numbers and data. But really, it's it's um, mainly used for the the video footage that it. It provides, and so that means that someone sitting in England can look at video footage of a player from uh, from Brazil, South America, um, America, or Japan, or Asia, or anywhere really in world football. But as I say, the, the scouts go to a game to provide an eye test because Y Scout will generally only show a t- a touches of a, of a ball that a player has, so you're not really seeing stuff off the ball generally. And so a scout just provides a, a fuller picture of a player's ability. Okay, so Taylor, how important is a scout in the soccer ecosystem? How important is it to a team? Could you do without them? No, I don't think you can. I mean, certain clubs try to. Manchester United have, uh, I feel like, uh, bypassed any sort of recruitment scouting. Uh, That's a joke on them. Uh, But I I think they're incredibly important. First, from the tactical side, as Graham already talked about, when you have a person going out scouting the opposition and finding vulnerabilities, finding opportunities – it explains to me why you so often have managers when they get a new gig insisting that they be allowed to bring in certain staff members because so much of that is going to be built on historical relationships and trust and a certain scout is going to know exactly what that manager wants or what they're looking for or how they want to play so that then those kind of uh, opportunities can be maximized. But that also goes for uh, player recruitment and scouting as well that you want basically – to have people in place that you know, that know the system, that know what the manager's looking for or understand the club philosophy so that you can sort of streamline the recruitment process to keep both first team players coming in, but also academy players coming in. And that's where you can have academy scouts or uh, more so first team scouts. But it really does allow teams to function efficiently and effectively theoretically because especially with the Premier League having the money that it does – Smaller clubs in England, but also in the rest of the world, have to find ways to be competitive, ways to identify players that they can then sell on or uh, get to ahead of time. And that's where having an elaborate scouting network with a, a lot of sort of information and data behind it is the way to go. It is indeed. It's about finding value, isn't it, for building the squad, mm-hmm. Taylor, essentially. Um, and I, I've actually been lucky enough to work with a few scouts quite closely. Uh, as I've mentioned on these shows before, I worked at Charlotte FC for a few years. Uh, and they, it, it kind of showed to me that scouts come from come in all shapes and sizes and come from all different backgrounds as well. Um, for example, the director of scouting at Charlotte FC is a gent called Thomas Scharling, a very nice Dutch gent who was at PSV Eindhoven and Art at Alkmaar pre, uh, previous to coming to Charlotte. Uh, PSV scouted Irving Lozano, uh, Zinchenko, Alexander Zinchenko, and Andrew Guadada as well, and a few others. Um, his background was he started playing football manager, championship manager on the computer. And when he was a teenager, quite a precocious teenager, started writing reports and sending yeah. them to Dutch clubs who eventually said, this guy knows his business. He knows what he's talking about. So there was that side of things. And then there was 
scouts at Charlotte who tended to be coaches who moved into scouting, who just have an eye for it. But the main one, or one of the main ones there, was a gent called Steve Walsh, who was the scout who famously built Leicester's Premier League winning team and the team that went up from uh, League One to Championship and Championship to Premier League as well. Famous for finding value, scouting players from the French second tier and getting you know, very low value players and converting them into very high Premier League transfers and Premier League winners, indeed. And he, his background was in, in coaching as well. So, Graham, it, it, they, uh, scouts do tend to come from different places, is my point. Absolutely, yeah. They, they, it draws in all sorts of, of different people from, from different backgrounds. You have um, people who have been coaches. So one of the most famous scouts in world football is a man called Piet de Visser. He's, he's credited with discovering Ronaldo and Ruud yeah. van Nistelrooy. And he was an advisor to Chelsea for a long time. And, and he played a key role in them signing Kevin De Bruyne, Arjen Robin, Thibaut Courtois, and and his background is that he was a manager. He was a he was a manager of countless clubs for for decades in the Netherlands until he he um, went full time into coaching. I think a good scout should have a, a good understanding of the mechanics of of the game, which is why a background as a coach is 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 pretty handy. And and most guides I've I've read have recommended that if you even if you don't have a, a background as a coach, it's useful to have some sort of coaching qualification so that you have that that grounding and understanding the sport. But you're right, people can come from all sorts of, of backgrounds. I have a friend who, who played for Sterling Albion. He then got a bad injury and he became a coach at Falkirk. And just earlier, earlier this year, he became North City's scout in Scotland. And I know of someone else, similar to, to what you were saying, Ryan, with Football Manager, someone else who was a researcher for Football Manager. And actually, I think loads of people actually um, walk that path. But football manager, they, they, they employ researchers all around the world where basically their job is to scout players for football manager. And so the, the, the steps from there into the, the professional game, the actual game is, is maybe not as big as, as you might think. So I know of a, a number who have, who have done that same thing. But then you have... Um, Mark Warburton, who is currently, uh, he's a football manager, was Rangers manager, was at QPR. Um, so he moved into management, but his first job was in scouting in professional football and his background was in finance. So you get all sorts of, of different people. And I, I, I quite like that. Hopefully you get people with different outlooks and ideas. And hopefully that leads to some diversity as well through allowing so many um, different people from different backgrounds into, into this profession. Yeah. I, and I think one of the things that I really enjoyed about with all that in mind, Graham, uh, in researching this episode was how you would get articles that were sort of like, here's what a scout does. Here are some examples of scouts. Doesn't it seem fun? You get to go around the world and watch these players and report back and you could be the one who signs Messi. And then there were other articles that spoke with actual scouts who talked about making like four pounds for 14 hours worth of work and how much work goes into it. And it reminds me of stories like my D3 college coaches would tell about starting out and how they would live on like cans of beans and a mattress on the floor because it was so sort of like you'd be in this team one year and then the next season maybe you'd get a new gig somewhere else and you just kind of had to always be on the road there was an anecdote in one of the bbc articles i read about how i guess if you if you have fewer than two hundred thousand kilometers on your car in the first three years of scouting then you're not doing it right <laughs> so it also seems like it is a grind it isn't always this like oh you just get to go and fly around the world and scout players and attend games and make a bunch of money i think there's a lot of labor that goes into it and then maybe eventually you reach uh, those peaks but there are also plenty of people who are still trudging away in the valley so to speak yeah and i think taylor what's interesting is when you become a coach you have to do badges and there is a system mm -hmm. to climb up the rankings as far as i can tell in scouting there's no such system. It's uh, the proof is in the pudding. If you if you write good reports and you find the right players, that's how you move up, rather than any formal 
qualifications or training. Yeah, it seems to me like like there's not a ton of regulation with it. So clubs can sort of offer you whatever they want to offer you. So for example, uh, that BBC article I was mentioning, uh, it's uh, following around Bournemouth scout Andy Penny. He'd been in football for 21 years. Uh, here's your quote. After a day of scouting, Penny will normally file a lengthy report back to his superior at the academy, Matty Holmes, the former Bournemouth and West Ham mi- uh, midfielder. The reports includes detailed analysis of a player's strengths and weaknesses and always answers one key question. Does he play with a smile on his face? That's good. Penny gets 25 pounds if a player is eventually signed by Bournemouth's Academy and a small monthly salary, he works for a building maintenance company in Poole in his full-time job. So that shows you, again, the reality of what scouting can be, but it also shows you that I think clubs can have as many people as they want working for them. They can have scouting networks or informal scouting networks of hundreds and hundreds of people. That doesn't mean everybody's getting paid a bunch of money. That doesn't mean... uh, But just because the scout comes to see a player, that player is then getting signed by that club because... That scout then has to go back and sell that player to the team oftentimes. Sometimes you'll have those big-name ones who can sort of go in, talk to a player, recommend them to the manager, and away we go. But I think the rest of the time it is sort of a scattershot approach with a bunch of people out there uh, turning over every rock they can find. Yeah, and I think what's a, what's a, people might get the impression that, you know, like a young player, for example, a, they know a scout's watching their game and like the weight of the world is on and they, they have to perform yeah. in that moment. It's all or nothing. But from my experience, it's not quite like that in terms of the process because they, they'll see a player two to three times live and they'll watch video and they'll do lots and lots of other background checks, so to mm-hmm. speak, before even thinking of putting pen to paper on a, on a professional player ground. Yeah, and the other thing is a, a, a scout will very rarely turn up to a match in my experience anyway with mm-hmm. the sole purpose of watching one player maybe maybe that happens at the at the top level I'm sure I'm trying to remember I'm sure I remember like Sir Alex Ferguson did he go to a Leo game to watch Eden Hazard before trying to sign him um, so you'd hear, you'd hear about managers maybe going out to I'm sure Solskjaer did it with Haaland in terms of trying to sign him as well but at, at a lower level a youth level scouts will go to games and they'll be taking notes on essentially every player on the pitch so it's not it's not not like it's a mm-hmm. it's a scouting job in a single player. They they cast the net very very wide and far. Yeah, Graham. I think I think you'll get like yeah. Go watch this game and like try to identify talent if it seems like there's like a rich vein there. Uh, but I think you will also get those sort of individual assignments as you mentioned, and then sometimes those can branch off because uh, here's here's another quote for you. Leicester City scout David Mills had been sent on a mission to watch a different player when his attention was caught by a whirlwind in midfield. Uh, he'd gone to Khan to watch a center half, and then this little lad in midfield towered over everyone despite being just five foot six. It was a case of who's nicked the ball there Conte who'd made that tackle Conte who poked that ball away oh Conte again uh, and so they ended up signing N'Golo Conte did Leicester uh, off of this uh, scouting uh, report but that scout had been sent there to set to watch one other player specifically so even there even if you're sent for one player you might end up uh, mm-hmm. having your eye turned by somebody else yes and one other thing I mentioned is because um, I've seen it up close uh, Charlotte FC one interesting facet is it doesn't always land on one person or even on the scouting team as we've mentioned managers will often go and scout players in person Uh, and scouting looked very different during covid as well obviously when there wasn't as much in-person scouting going on so if if you're interested Mm. in little insight and how charlotte's um, did a lot of their scouting when they were setting up for example um, the scouting team or the director would assign members of the technical team games you've got six games to watch this week here's a Bolivian second division game here's a Polish third division game and they all had to watch these specific games which had specific targets in them and 
produce these reports. And it was really fascinating watching people in this office doing that, to be honest. Very interesting stuff. Yeah, because I, I think I, I read a few things like that about watching the individual players that had been assigned or sort of looking at one player. And it made me want to do that, not to scout players, but just to sort of see the game differently. Because there was another one talking about uh, scouting a goalkeeper and how people will just focus on the shot saved or the goal kick taken or whatever it might be. But then when the ball's at the other end of the pitch, they're watching the ball at the other end of the pitch. And a scout is watching the goalkeeper the whole time to see what positioning they're taking, how much pay, uh, attention they're paying, what's their communication style. It, it, it is really fascinating, the idea of just watching one player for an entire 90 minutes to see what they do. I guess I always assume it's just that Zidane documentary. It didn't occur to me that you could do that with every player as well. <laughs> Indeed. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to dig into more of what scouts are actually looking for, what they see that us mere mortals can't quite spot, and much, much more after the break. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Soccer 101, welcome back. Graham, uh, to get back to the question I asked before the break, what mm-hmm. exactly, what qualities are scouts looking for? Is there something that they can see that we don't see do they do they read the game differently is there a quality you're looking for say in a youth player that you're not looking for in a more developed player um well i guess they do look for certain things that that we as as casual fans maybe wouldn't look for they they are mortal like us so it's not like they're born into into scouting and i would suggest that while there isn't actually a there's not really a qualification system in scouting if you go online you can find a number of places where, where you can get courses so a good place to start would be the the pfsa which is a professional football scouts association and you can become a a member of the pfsa for 120 pounds a year and they offer a whole load of seminars and workshop courses which would give you a good ground in scouting and kind of tell you what a what a scout is looking for when they're assessing a player so i think it kind of depends on the assignment that they have been given and so if they're looking for players who can slot straight into the first team the criteria will be different from if they're looking looking for kids to be recruited by the academy so if you're you're scouting young players you're probably looking for fundamental qualities that that give a player a good basis to build on because it's very unlikely that you will find a teenager who has the the finished article so things like technical ability can it can a player control and pass a ball do they have a natural ability that would lend itself to the modern game um, for a young player, things like composure and concentration, they, they might not be as important because those things tend to be linked to the, to the mind and, the, and the, the mindset of a player. And those things either come with age or natural maturity or they can, they can be taught to a certain extent. Obviously, some players have a, a natural composure. Um, but things like physical attributes, attributes like, like pace and strength, those will also be assessed in young players. But I find when I was reading, doing my research on this, I would find when it came to those things that that was often assessed with a view to doing some sort of forecasting rather than assessing the player as they are now. Um, So as a player too reliant on their speed at a young age and what happens when that, that speed starts to fade later in their career or more pertinently, 
does a player use their natural strength and physical attributes to cover up some deficiencies in their game? And what happens when other players in that age category catch up in that regard? So you might see a 15-year-old who is physically stronger and more dominant than his teammates, but are, are those qualities masking some other flaws in his game? And when those other players around him match him for physicality over or him or her for the over the next few years is he going to be out of his depth that's the sort of thing that i found and then and then if a scout is just very quickly if they're assessing an established player um, the criteria might not be so broad so they, they might be looking for a very specific player with a specific skill set to perform a specific role within a team that has been determined by a, a manager or a coach and the scope becomes narrower when you're scouting established players because you you might not have time to mold that player when you scout younger players you, you might see flaws but you're trying to look at the wider potential of that player to grow and you have time to to work on those flaws but with an established player you might not have that time so you gen speaking generally you want something closer to the finished article so the tldr of that is basically it depends on the assignment and that the scout will um will will tailor their criteria depending on that assignment yeah, yeah. and then it also depends on the scouts mentality themselves because you can get that scout who maybe is a football manager or a Y scout enthusiast who sort of uh, made their bones sending in these reports and having these detailed uh, instructions. But then you might also get the kind of old school scout. And the one that will forever stay in my mind is in Sutherland till I die when they send out a scout to watch a player and he immediately chalks him off. Does anybody remember why? Why that player isn't good enough? Oh, I don't. I don't. Because he's wearing gloves, and that means he doesn't have the right <laughs> temperament to handle oh, the wow. physicality. So we don't need a player like that. So you will still get that old school mentality of, oh, he doesn't have enough fight. Oh, he's a little bit too small. Oh, he's wearing gloves. He's got a snood on. I don't like any of that stuff. But I think that, again, represents the manager or the club that they are employed by, uh, for better or for worse. But then you will also get that sort of more new school, uh, the more modern one using more data and analytics. And then sometimes you'll get the blend of the two. What I find fascinating is the differences between, say, say Taylor scouting an under-15 at FC Dallas and PSG when they're going to buy Neymar. I imagine mm. the, the scouts at PSG like fire up PowerPoint, put their feet on the desk and go, yep, he does all the stuff, whereas the under-15 might be more of a sell. Yeah, well, I think I think Graham did a good job of sort of laying it out, that with that under-15, you're looking at maybe not intangibles, but the sort of raw abilities there. Is there uh, an intelligence? Is there like good positioning? Are there raw abilities? Is there like blistering speed that can be utilized? Is there good aerial ability or good size already that can be utilized? Are they overly reliant on their size? That's a downturn. So I, I think with youth players, there's a lot more to look at in the kind of raw ability and then their mentality and disposition. I also think there's a lot more leeway because you can sign people to to academies or younger players to academies for significantly less money. And if you're a 12-year-old who has Manchester United come watch you, that, that right there is going to make you maybe pretty excited to sign for them for not very much money. I'm not even sure they can pay you money. Whereas if you're a 21-year-old and Manchester United comes looking at your club and you're already playing professionally, then there's going to be a more sizable outlay, you would assume. And so that means that I think there still has to be that detailed analysis or there should be that detailed analysis. And I think that's the difference maker between 
Liverpool signing somebody like uh, Luis Diaz, who comes in and looks like he's been in that system for five years, and signing somebody who comes in and just seems like they're off the pace. And they had the name recognition, they had the ability, it seemed, but when actually push comes to shove, when actually put into the system, they don't shine. And I think that can be the big difference. They, they, they can't pay a 15-year-old, but they can uh, buy a house for their family. Yes. That tends to be the, the, the Pogba <laughs> ploy, I think that's called. Yeah, Hire them to be a gardener. Their gardening skills are so good that they need to be brought uh, to the UK <laughs> right away. Yeah, yeah, that's tricky. And I, I mentioned the Neymar um, situation, Graham, a bit facetiously, but it's important to note that with a major multi-million dollar pound signing, that there has to be a business case made for it. So the scouts or whatever technical department it is will still have to make a business mm. case to the owners, to the directors, to the board that this player is the right one for these yep. reasons, unless you're Man United, in which case you just sign who you like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, we're, I think later on in this discussion, we might move on to who are, which club has the worst scouts. And spoiler alert, I, I found that a little bit difficult to assess for the, the reasons you've just laid out there, Ryan, in that the, the, the signings that a club makes, especially at the top level, the elite level, are not always a result of the, the, the quality of the, of the scouting. So you might actually have a good base of scouts who are making good recommendations and producing good reports. But ultimately, the club has other factors to, 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 to bring in when, when deciding whether to, to, to sign a player, like the commercial side of things, if you're going to sign Neymar. And so um, it's, it's a little bit difficult to assess, um, as I say, which scouts are doing their job it's easier to, to assess which ones are doing their job rather than which ones are not doing their job essentially all right graham so before we go negative let's go positive who 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 out there are notable for having great scouts so i think um over the last decade and a half as a whole borussia dortmund have had a lot of success with their their scouting network um i think the most impressive thing about dortmund is their reach is impressive, so they've got a, a good track record of signing players from Asia and Japan, from Eastern Europe, from within Germany itself, from the English lower leagues and the academies of English clubs. And, and the thing that Dortmund have done well is, is create this self-perpetuating loop where they use their, their past success to sign players. So Jude Bellingham is a very good example of this. Um, he decides to, to sign for Dortmund over Manchester United. Um, United offering him a higher wage, but he goes to Dortmund because he's seen how how well uh, Jaden Sancho has done there, and I, I presume other players as well. And so, good scouting leads to to more good scouting, and that the, the the players that they are scouting and and believe to be good enough are are more inclined to sign for that club because they think they're going to get an opportunity there. I think I'm going to name Celtic as one of the the clubs with the best scouts. Um, so a man called John Park. He led their, their scouting network for a number of years. And that time, Celtic signed Virgil van Dijk, Victor Wanyama, Fraser Foster, uh, Tom Rogic, who didn't make that move from Celtic, but was very successful th- for them. Moussa Dembele, Christopher Ayer. So that's that's a lot of success for a club that really can't spend uh, huge sums on, on transfers. And then another club with a, a very strong track record when it comes to scouting is, is Lille which is just as well because they, they obviously can't compete with the, the resources of PSG and Ligue 1, but the players that they have they have signed early in their career include uh, Johan Kabay, Dimitri Paye, uh, Vincent, Vincent Nyema, Stefan Lichsteiner, Adil Rami, Luca Dina, Divock Origi, uh, Eden Hazard, and then more recently you have Jonathan David and Victor Osimhen as well. So that is, a, that is a lot of talent to have come through that one club. That is impressive. Uh, Taylor, any other nominees for... Uh, famous scouts or great scouts. I always think of Southampton as an example, and they have that famous black box of data that they yeah. use to accompany their scouting network. And there was a point where Liverpool just bought all of their players. 
Yeah, it's it's weird how it seems, if not cyclical, that it just comes in waves. Because there was that time with Southampton uh, having that scouting uh, department. Same thing with Porto uh, having players that they would then sell on for like 100 million euros every single season. And I think they still do. But I think maybe they just get less attention because it's not quite as... Obvious as it was when, yeah, Liverpool were just signing every single Southampton player over and over again. Uh, Graham already late, uh, mentioned one name that popped out. Uh, Piet de Visser uh, had a long and has had a long uh, career of signing very, very, very good players. But I, I suspect that with with this, it's like there are famous scouts, but we probably don't really know of them. And I think it's it's one of those things where maybe they're not like high profile to the average soccer fan. But if you are in that industry or in that world, then there are like all caps famous personalities. And the best like analogy I can draw is in Parks and Recreation when Leslie Nope is obsessed with career bu- bureaucrats and Liam Bonneville, the resident bad boy of the Department of the Interior. Like she knows all of the Department of the Interior people because she's in that world. It makes her very excited to know these people, to meet these people. And I think that's probably how it works in in certain aspects of football as well. You might have some really famous people in that industry or some very, very respected and uh, highly influential individuals that most soccer fans will probably never hear of. Graham Carr is one that I always remember because oh, his but Graham name Carr, was mentioned Graham Carr a is lot. definitely one. <laughs> he, he, had, he was at Newcastle when Alan Pardew was manager there and... Because Newcastle kept going back to the French market, it was kind of it became this talking point of like, okay, well, who who's guiding them to France all the time? And so Graham Carr's name was was mentioned a lot back then, and and he seemed to have excellent knowledge of the of the French market. And they got players like uh, Demba Ba, Hatem Ben Arfa, Johan Kabay, um, Papi Cisse, who he actually played for a German club. Czech Tayote, I think, came from the Netherlands as well. But around that time, it felt like uh, Newcastle were making a lot of a lot of good signings. I think Graham Carr is another one I would mention. Uh, Graham, be honest. If you were named Ryan Carr, would you like him as much as you do because his name is Graham Carr? <laughs> Come on. Come on. No, I mean, I, I tend to gravitate towards uh, things yep. that are called Graham, like Graham Potter, Graham Lasso, Graham Crackers. Yeah, like all those things. Who's your I other mean, favorite Scottish football analyst? Uh, is it Graham, Graham the one Hunter? that wears the sunglasses indoors. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> By that logic, Taylor, I would love Ryan Giggs, and I'm not so hot on him right now. Um, but that's another topic altogether. I'll say, by the way, what my favourite um, scout is the network talent scout from Anchorman, who, if you remember, is uh, leaning on the hood of his car with a pair of binoculars and, an, and a notepad, <laughs> uh, scouting Ron Burgundy and co. for the national news. Uh, that's apropos of nothing. Um, I just, that's just how I picture scouts watching games, for, leaning yep. on the hood of their cars with, with binoculars. Um, let's talk about the worst scouts. Let's finish off with that then. And Graham, I mentioned, well, we mentioned Manchester United a little earlier mm. on. And I don't know whether we can necessarily uh, historically say they have got the worst scouts. If I famously see the class of 92 coming through, maybe that's more to do with their youth development than their scouting, or maybe they're one and the same thing. But in modern times, you've got this Man United squad, which you, the rationale behind signing players isn't entirely clear. The structure of the club isn't entirely clear. And you've got this mishmash of a squad uh, that's not as well developed as their blue neighbours, let's say. Yeah, so as, as a reference earlier, it can be a bit trickier to know which clubs have the worst scouts because uh, a club's transfer activity isn't necessarily the result of uh, the, the club's scouting. 
But with Manchester United, actually, and this isn't in my notes, I'm kind of going off the top of my head here, but at the end of last season, there was quite a bit of reporting around their scouting network. Jim Lawler left um, at the end at the end of the season. He'd been at Manchester United for decades, going back to really the start of Sir Alex Ferguson's time there. And, and there was a lot of reporting that Manchester United had essentially, their scouting network had got a lot smaller, not only in terms of um, scouting players abroad, but also in terms of scouting players on their own doorstep. You know, you see a, n- a number of the the best um, players from the, the northwest of, of England now going to clubs like Manchester City. I mean, Phil Foden is a good example. Would he have gone to Manchester United's academy 20 years ago? I think there's a, a good argument that, that, that he would have. Um, so, yeah, I think Manchester United is, is, is a good example of a club that has allowed their standards to slip in terms of scouting. I'd, I'd suggest um, Everton as well, but this, this is where it gets a little bit confusing and the waters get a little bit muddied because they had a, they've had they actually made some good appointments in terms of people. So Marcel Brands was their sporting director for a couple seasons. He had a very good track record at PSV and the aforementioned uh, Steve Walsh was at Everton as well, yet Everton's transfer strategy was was a mess when uh, the both of them worked for the club. So I don't know how much is, of that is on Mashiri, the owner, or people higher higher in the in the food chain maybe overriding their, their recommendations. Um, and I would say PSG is another good yeah. example where there's a, there's a disconnect between the grassroots scouting and the leadership of the club. PSG, I think it's reasonable to assume, have excellent scouts. They have unearthed so many good young players. Ferland Mendy, Chris Cuckoo, Moussa Dembele, Matteo Guendouzi, Odson Edouard. Tim Weir. There's a I lot of you. players... There is there is a there's a common thread there that none of those players ended up actually playing for the first team. So um, yeah, I don't know if the scouts can really be blamed for that. But in terms of a disconnect between the two sides of the club, I think PSG are up there. Yep, I think Graham nailed it. I think we we can't say for sure because we just don't know how if they like. I, I've struggled to think of a club having just actually bad scouts aside from Sunderland, who I already mentioned. Uh, but I, I can't think of many clubs that would just be like, yeah, yeah, like he he misses every single time, but we keep him around. I think it always comes down to how much weight do clubs give to their scouting. How much are they incentivized to actually bring in players? Because you might have a scout who's. Uh, found this Uruguayan 16-year-old who can be that next big uh, central midfielder, but then, ah, is he going to sell shirts? Is he the commercial sponsor we need? We can just go out and sign this uh, like 24-year-old who's going to immediately sell shirts and give us more corporate sponsorship, so we're going to do that. I think it comes down to how much are you actualizing uh, that so the scouting department, and I think there are clubs that do a much better job of that than others, and I think Graham has hit upon two who don't do a particularly great job, at least of late. Wonderful stuff. I think that just about wraps up Soccer 101. We've learned an awful lot about scouting, about uh, the people who build our teams, and about the people who find the talent of tomorrow. Taylor Rockwell, are you a happy bunny right now? I am a very happy bunny, although I do have a couple questions for Graham, uh, if you don't mind. Graham, real quick, uh, your favorite type of cracker? Uh, Graham, yeah. It's That's Graham what I thought. Cracker. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, as Americans say, sorry, as Americans say, Graham Cracker. Thank you. Uh, your favorite unit of measurement when it comes to weights? <laughs> I can see where we're good here. Your favorite uh, yes, person with the last yep. name Norton. That's the last one for you. Favorite person with uh, the yes. last name Norton. Yeah. Ed. <laughs> ah, there we go. He oh, zigged there. at the end. When I... <laughs> well done, sir. <laughs> favorite inventor of the telephone? We can keep going if you'd like. Anyway, uh, thank you very much. Steve Jobs. <laughs> oh, yes. I like these sideways answers. Graham Rutherford, thank you very much for your contributions uh, on Graham questions and scouting questions. <laughs> thank you, Ryan Bailey. Taylor Rockwell, pleasure as always, good sir. 
Uh, pleasure was mine. Ryan, I'm, I feel like you've watched The Sopranos. You should know that Tony Soprano is going to find you and yell at you because we all know the inventor of the phone was an Italian. He makes that very clear, <laughs> and I can't believe you've forgotten. If you talk to a Scottish person, they invented absolutely everything. Um, so, that's because it's true. Yeah, that's a conversation. Here we go. That's, we, we should probably shut this thing off now. But uh, Antonio Meucci. There it is. I got it. <laughs> thank you, listener. Well, we'll be back on the feed with another one very soon. But for now, we'll catch you later. <laughs>